Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Yeah, amen. Hey, I want all of you in all of our Tulsa campuses, if you would, I want you to put your hands together and welcome those in Chicago and our friends in the Middle East in Jordan and in Cairo today. We're so, so glad that you're joining us today. And, and uh, today I, I'm beginning a brand new series called The Good Fight. And we put that out on social media and several of you have been uh, texting or tweeting and asking questions about it. And in fact, I've gotten this question more than one time is, hey, does this series, The Good Fight, have anything to do with a series we did a few years ago called, the, called Good Sex? Which is a weird question, actually. And uh, I, I'm sending all of you who asked that question to our counselors uh, for somebody to meet with you. It has nothing to do with that, although I guess for some couples, uh, you know, good sex comes after the good fight. But as far as sermon series are concerned, uh, good sex came years before the good fight, and it has nothing to do with any of that. It's a different series altogether. And it's about how we fight the good fight. And really what this series is is one long look at one book in the New Testament, 2 Timothy. So we're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to work through this one book uh, in the Bible. And uh, 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. And we know a lot about Paul in Scripture, but the truth is we know very little about Timothy, very little at all about him. One of the things we do know is we do know that he was a convert to Christianity. Thanks to Paul, right? We also do know that he was called into the ministry and he was put in charge at the church at Ephesus. We could probably make an argument that the church at Ephesus was Paul's favorite church of all the churches that he started and was a part of. And so what, what we can say is that regardless of how young Timothy was, he was given a big, big, big responsibility. But this series is not about who Paul was and it's certainly not about who Timothy was. It's not a history lesson. This series is a combat lesson. It's a war lesson. And it's all about how you and I should fight the good fight and how we can fight uh, the good fight. And when you are in a fight, one of the very first questions you ask is, who am I fighting, right? That, that's a question that you would ask. And you could answer that question a hundred different ways. But over and over and over again, Paul makes it incredibly clear that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't fight against people. We, 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 we fight against powers, and we fight against principalities, and we fight against evil, and we fight against darkness. Uh, that's our target, and that's our enemy, and that's our focus, right? But we've spent a lot of time over the years in several series on the question of who are we fighting against. The question I want us to focus in on today is who or what are we fighting for? Who or what are we fighting for? Because you and I both have uh, some stake in it or, or, or some skin in the game because we all have people who depend on us, whether it's our children or our spouse or our parents, our employees, our employer, right? We, we all have people who need us to fight for them. And over the next six weeks, including today, five after today, we're gonna keep asking that question. What are you fighting for, and who are you fighting for, and what is it in your life that is actually worth fighting for? Because when something critical uh, comes up in your life and something critical plays out in your life, uh, it, it, it can take all the other things that you were doing and cause them just to run out with the tide. You know what I'm talking about? That, that something critical comes to play in, in your life, that, then you find out what is really worth fighting for. 
you, you could be fighting over some minor issue in your family. Maybe you have a teenager and, and, and you're fighting with her about picking up her clothes and her dirty clothes all the time and trying to get her uh, to clean up her room. And, and then she comes in and she announces she's been raped. It puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, that room that you were so worried about is no longer a big deal. And all of a sudden, those clothes on the floor are no longer a real button for you or an issue for you because now you've got something worth fighting for and now you've got something that's really, really, really important in, in your life. And there are a lot of things from day to day that we think are important, like politics or personal preferences or whatever. And, and maybe you think those things are really, really important and what I hope to do in this series, through this look at 2 Timothy, is to show you exactly what really is worth fighting for in your life. But because in your life, hear me church, you will have no shortage of fights that you could fight. You and I will never be poor of opportunity to jump in a fight. But the good fight is the fight that is really worth something. And we're going to look at it in this series. So I hope you will be all in with me uh, over the next six weeks. I'm really excited about it. I'll be here for all six weeks. I'm excited and thrilled about what God's going to teach us in 2 Timothy. So I hope you'll be here and you'll commit to be here over the next uh, five weeks because this is critical to your life and it's critical to my life to show us what is actually worth fighting for and, and then how to fight uh, for those things. So we're going to dig in. In 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy rather, and we're going to go verse by verse through 2 Timothy. But before we do that, let me just take a minute to give you a, a background sketch so we know who and what we're dealing with in, in these four chapters that make up the book uh, of 2 Timothy. Now, a few years ago, we worked through the first 10 chapters of the book, book of Acts. Remember that? We called that series Remember. You should remember. And, and we walked through the first 10 chapters. You get to the end of the book of Acts, the start of the New Testament church, and the book ends with Paul in Rome. And he's in Rome because he started a riot in Jerusalem and he was charged with a crime. Now you remember, he appealed up and up and up the chain all the way to Caesar, right? And we get to the end of the book of Acts and he is in a rented house awaiting trial or awaiting, you know, going before Caesar. And the book ends kind of on a cliffhanger. We don't know what happens, right? We, we don't know how it plays out. They just kind of leave us hanging. Now, we can assume that he finally got to Caesar. We, we can assume that he not only got to Caesar to talk about what was going on, but he got to Caesar and got to talk to Caesar about Jesus. We certainly can fill in the gaps by, by some of the writings uh, of Paul and, and some of the letters that Paul wrote, and we certainly can fill in other gaps with what ancient historians have told us. But, but what we can assume is that after talking to Caesar, Paul was set free. And that he goes on at least one more missionary journey and he gets arrested again. And maybe Caesar told him, Paul, I'm going to let you go, but you can't talk about Jesus anymore. Which we know Paul is not going to oblige that commandment, right? And so somewhere along the line, he gets arrested again. He's sent to Rome again and this time he's not in a rented house surrounded by his friends this time he's under lock and key he's in chains he is in prison and he is placed in a dark prison cell guarded by a roman soldier day and night and i've been to rome in fact i would say to you rome is one of my favorite cities in, in the whole world the best 10 meals i've had in the world were all in rome and, and i love 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 rome but when you go to rome everything in rome is all about peter 
everything is about Peter. They don't even mention Paul. But this prison that Paul was in, it's called the Maritime uh, Prison. Maritime means related to the sea because it's right there on the water. The Maritime Prison where Paul was, I went in there, wasn't even a line. You didn't have to pay to get into this tourist site. Nobody even cares about it. But I was fascinated by this prison. Could write a book if you would send me there for 10 or 11 weeks. But let me just show you a picture from the, the, this prison. It still stands today. This prison where Paul was in, where he is writing uh, these letters. And it's there in this prison cell that, that Paul realizes, it's not going good for me. And he realizes, my days are numbered. And he starts to write, right? And, and he's writing letters to some of his closest friends. And we're the beneficiary, right? Because we get Second Timothy, First and Second. We get the letter, his personal letter that he wrote to his friend. Because Timothy was his closest friend and his closest colleague in ministry. But Timothy was more than that to Paul. And we're going to see that as we work through this book. But before we jump in on chapter 1 and verse 1, I, I want to go to the end really, really quick. Uh, of the book in chapter 4 and, and verse 6, which is sort of a key verse for this whole series. And, and he's writing and, and he's thinking over his entire life. And this is what he says. Watch what he says to, to Timothy. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. And look what he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful listen that is the goal church that's the goal for all of us right that at the end of our lives we could look back over our lives and we could say I fought the good fight and, and, and hear me we're all gonna fight we're all gonna fight you can't opt out of that but the choice we do have is to actually fight the good fight instead of a bunch of meaningless ones or trivial ones have you ever gotten to the end of a chapter in your life and you thought my goodness I gave a lot of time sweat blood and tears and energy to impress people who don't even know my name and they don't care anything about me at all right so let's crack open this book of 2nd Timothy let's take a peek at what Paul has for us. And so turn to the first chapter of 2 Timothy and let's start reading in chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book of 2 Timothy. Now look at what he says. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now what I want you to do is I want you to underline that phrase in your Bible, the will of God. That phrase is thrown around in church all the time. I hear it in church circles all the time. How do I know if I'm in the will of God? How do I know what the will of God is? Should I go to this school? Should I go to that college? Should I marry him? Should I marry her? Should I take this job? How do I know? How do I find the will of God? And let me just say to you, in, in the plainest and the most simple terms that I can put out for you, what the will of God is for you. I know it. I know what the will of God is for all of you. And here it is. God's will is for you to become more and more like Jesus Christ every day. That's his will for you. And if you are getting closer to Jesus day in and day out, and you're becoming more intimate in your relationship with Jesus, then you don't have to sweat the little decisions. Quite honestly, you don't even have to worry about the big decisions because you are in the will of God and he is going to lead you and he is going to direct you and, and, and you will be making the right decisions because you're in the will of God. Now look what he says. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle. Circle that word, apostle. And I'm just showing you notes from my Bible, okay? That's what I'm showing you here. I circled the word apostle and I write in the margin the, the phrase sent one because that's what the word apostle means. 
it means sent one. That's what it means. An apostle is a sent one. So in my Bible, I wrote the question, well, where did God send him? And we know the answer to that, right? First of all, he sent him off his feet and onto his butt in Acts chapter 9, right? Remember, we, we covered this, the conversion story, that, that his personal testimony is shared, and it's a good one. I mean, it's, it's a big one. We would bring him in, right, to share his testimony and to tell us what God did in his life. And he's going around persecuting Christians, and he's murdering them, and he's killing them. He even supervises over the killing of Stephen while he was stoned to death. But one day he's going to Damascus, and this bright light appears, right? And the bright light is so powerful that it knocks him to the ground. And then this voice comes out of the light, and it's Jesus. And he says, hey, why are you persecuting me, Jesus? And his whole life changes. Why? Because Jesus can do more in a moment than you and I can in a whole lifetime. And then God sent him to the Gentiles. We know that, right? He went, he went to Ephesus. He went to Corinth. He went to Galatia. He went on and on and on and on, right? And we, when we follow him, we see incredible spiritual growth. We see lots of people being converted to Christianity, but there's also some intense persecution. There's some intense beatings. And finally, he was sent to Rome to prison. And ultimately, he was sent to the executioner's sword. The life of Paul. And God sent him all over the place. And because he went all over the place, he found all kinds of fights. And, and because Paul heard the voice of God and obeyed it, he always came out the winner in, in the end of the fight. And, and Paul first fought the fight within himself. And you find him in his testimony on his knees, surrendering to Jesus and entering into a relationship and a faith in Jesus Christ. And if he had not fought that battle first, he would never have been the man that he was that you and I are talking about thousands of years later. So that's where he was sent. But more important is what was he sent to do? And look, he tells us, look what he says. I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ. Now, here are the two phrases I want you to circle. Tell others and faith in Christ. And then draw a line between the two. Because that's what he was sent to do. He was sent to do what? To tell others. About what? About faith in Christ. Christ. And as we walk through this book, I'm going to point out some things to you, and we're going to look at some things, and we're going to drop anchor at some moments. But part of the reason I do this periodically, about three or four times a year, we'll take a book of the Bible, and we'll just kind of work through it. Why do I do that? One of the big reasons that I do that is, A, I want to teach you to digest the Word of God. But B, I want to teach you to just take the Word of God and work through a passage, and to work through a book. People say to me every time we do dinner with the pastor, and almost every time in the guest reception, I don't know how to study my Bible. I'm going to show you. Okay, I'm going to show you how to do it as we walk through uh, this letter. And, and look what he says. He said, I'm writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace and mercy and, and peace. Now, I underline that phrase, my dear son, and, and I wrote out beside it, personal. Why? Why does that matter? Because it's different some of, than some of the other uh, letters. Some of the other letters are written to churches, to whole churches. This one's not. It's a personal letter. And, and that means that you and I uh, get a chance to look over Paul's shoulder 
as he writes a personal letter to a very close friend. It's not a letter to a church about doctrine or about discipline. This is different. We get to see the heart of the author. We get to see the heart of God. It's a personal letter to a close personal friend. And this is the person Paul is fighting for. This is the person that Paul is willing to die for, right? And so let's keep reading. I'm writing to Timothy, my dear son, may God the Father uh, uh, and Christ Jesus, our Lord, give you grace, mercy, and peace. Look what he says. Timothy, I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors uh, did. I want you to underline those two phrases. I thank God for you, and I serve God with a clear conscience. I want you to think about that phrase. I serve God with a clear conscience. Think of the incredible value of living life with a clear conscience. So few people in our culture actually live life with a clear conscience. But those of you who do, let me just tell you, incredible peace is your gift. And God puts incredible peace on you and in you and all around you because you're living your life with a clear conscience. Now let's look at what he goes on to say. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Uh, circle or underline that phrase, constantly remember. Now think about this for a second. He called Timothy, my dear son. Now here's the question I want to ask you. Who matters to you the most? Who is it that really matters to you the most? Think about that for a moment. And he says, I thank God for you. Who do you thank God for? for on, on a regular basis and when you're on your deathbed fast forward you're real a little bit to, to the place where you're lying on your deathbed who are you going to want there and, and who are you going to be thinking about in, in that moment and who is it that you are going to be thankful for again we spend a lot of time and energy on, on people that we really don't care about and we really don't love and really don't matter that much to us. If we could just fast forward the real and then look back and say, these are the people that are going to matter to me at the end of my life, then I ought to spend some time investing in them and pouring into them and caring for and being with them. And, and, and so... Uh, the way we die says so much about the way we lived, right? And what we think about and what we talk about at the moment of death is also very, very telling about how we've lived our lives. And here's the question I want to ask you today. Who are you fighting for? Paul was fighting for Timothy. But he was also fighting for every member of every church that he had started. And he was saying, and he was making it very clear to them, uh, this is what's at stake because you're constantly on my mind and you are constantly in my prayers. Now, I just want to say to you today, I, I don't know who the top five people are that pray for you and care for you in, in your life, but I'm on that list. I'm on your list. I love you. I care for you. I pray for you every day in the morning, every evening at night, every time I wake up in the middle of the night. You are on my heart. You are in my mind, and I am praying for you. That is a gift that God puts in a shepherd, on a shepherd for the people that he is shepherding, and, and I'm on your top five. For some of you, you ain't got a lot of people. I'm in your top three. But I want you to think through this for a moment. Who matters to you the most? And are you showing that by the way you talk about them? 
And are you showing it uh, by the way you talk to them? Are you showing it by the way you think about them? Are you showing it by the way you talk to God about them? Are you showing people that they matter to you in your prayers? Or are your prayers all self-centered? Are they all about you? Are they all about your little world? Are you praying for the people around you? Now, let's, let's look as he keeps writing and, and watch the passion come out. I long. I love Paul's passion. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we're together again. I love Paul. He's always talking in couplets, right? I remember the tears when we parted, and I look forward to the day when we'll be again. He's always talking in these two couplet things, almost like a poet, right? It's so good to be with you, and it would be really bad if I wasn't with you. He's always doing it. It's kind of Yoda-ish, right? I mean, like the structure is just weird how he does his sentences, and he's always doing that. And he says, I long to see you again, right? I long to see you again, and, and, and I'll remember this, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. Now listen, we never find out, by the way, if Paul and Timothy were ever reunited on earth. We, we, we don't find out. But here's what we do know. We do know that they met again in heaven. We know that. And we know that Paul was at the end of his fight and the end of his journey, and he looked back at Timothy, who was just starting out in his fight and just starting out in his journey, and he wants him to be ready to fight the good fight. And he wants him to be equipped to fight the good fight. And listen, we're all going to fight. That's not the question. The question is, are we going to fight the good fight? And, and, and we're going to read through this chapter today. We're going to read through the whole book in the next five weeks and we're going to go over and through this book but if you are here and you say i really need an outline okay i'm gonna give you one i know there are a few of you in the room uh, so i'm gonna give you a little two-point outline today of the main points of chapter one and here they are the musts for the good fight okay the, the good fight requires these two things and we see this in chapter one the first thing it requires is a sincere faith a genuine faith the second thing that it requires is a spiritual fire. Those are the points today. It's so easy, isn't it? It's so simple and it's so easy, and that's one of the things I want you to get a hold of today is that reading the Bible doesn't have to be hard and it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be confusing. Just read it like a love letter and let God speak to you through it and uh, read it with purpose like we're doing today. And what is so simple can become very profound to you in your life because God uses it to speak to you. Now, now let's keep reading, and I'm going to show you where I found these, okay? I remember your genuine faith. That's it right there. Circle that. Genuine faith. That's the sincere faith. That's where I got it, okay? Sincere faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I know the same faith continues strong in you today. Listen, there is a generational theme that runs through this first chapter, in verse 3, Paul talks about his forefathers, right? In verse 5, he talks about the mama and the grandmama. And then in verse 6, he talks about, I laid hands on you and passed this down. Let me just sidebar for a second and tell you, if you're new to TC, man, we believe in this. We, we, we so much believe in this. We completely believe in this generational blessing and we are not about bricks and mortar we are not about buildings we need them and, and we take care of them and we build them and we buy them but but that's not what we're about around here we are about this lineage and one of the things that's missing in our culture today is spiritual fathers 
And in a world filled with homes that are raising up children without a biological father in the home, let me tell you, it is crucial for us to be the spiritual fathers in the lives of the next generation to help them come along. And we see this play out with Paul and, and, and Timothy. We're the church. That means we're the body. We're the body of Christ. And I believe churches, many of them, quite honestly, have stalled because they lack the sincerity that Paul is talking about. And church, we've got to recapture that sincerity and we have got to fight for that genuineness and that sincerity in our lives and we can never let that go. That is what we are about, a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 6. Look at what he says. This is why I remind you to fan into flames. Circle that in your, in your Bible, fan into flames. That's where I get spiritual fire, right? Fan this into flames. What? The, the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. Verse 7, this is why I remind you to fan into flames. There it is. For God has not given you, look at what he says, has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Circle those words in, in your Bible. And if you don't memorize scripture, you should memorize this one anyways. I pull this one out of the holster weekly. Weekly, this verse comes out of the holster in my spiritual battles and my life. And not just for me, but for people that I'm talking to. On a regular basis, I will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God has not given you a spirit of fear. He didn't give you a spirit of timidity. He, he gave you a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Listen, that fear has no place in your life. You're a child of God. That's not the gift that God gave you. And so you ought to memorize this one. This one ought to be in your holster ready to shoot the enemy on a regular basis. So let's go back real quick and talk about those two points that I just gave you. Because I want to be very, very, very clear about what these two ideas are all about. Because this is so vital to understanding how to fight the good fight. And, and how to move along with this journey called life. The first idea, a sincere faith. Jesus talked about it all the time. In fact, one of the ways that Jesus talked about a sincere faith is he, he used a word that was talking about the opposite of sincere faith. On a regular basis, he would use this particular word, and one of the places he did that is in Matthew chapter 6, where he's talking about people who don't have sincere faith and didn't have sincere faith. And he said, when you give your offerings, don't do it like the, you know the word, hypocrites. Don't do it like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't do it like the hypocrites. When you give, don't do it like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites, right? Because the hypocrites want everyone to know how much they gave, how much they fast, and how great their prayers are. But when you do that like a hypocrite, God won't hear your prayers. That's what Jesus said. Now, that word hypocrite, when you study the etymology of that word, it comes from a Greek word, which actually came from a Latin word. And both the Greek word and the Latin word sound almost exactly the same as the English word. And those words mean actor. That's what a hypocrite is. A actor. A hypocrite is someone who plays a part. And in Paul's day, they had Roman theaters, right? He's in Rome. They had Roman theaters where the theater was started, right? Much like we have today. But they didn't have, you know, backstage and they didn't have... Uh, backdrops and they certainly didn't have nice seats you know like we sit in today 
Uh, in fact, it's nothing like we have today, actually. Forget that I said that. It's nothing like what we have today. And, and thank God for technology, right? I do it all the time. Every time I go to a movie, I thank God for the technology that we can go to a movie theater where we sit in a recliner and punch a button and it will lay us back, right? And, and I always bring a blanket. Bothers Meredith to the nth degree. She's like, that's freaky. Don't, no, put the armrest down. No blanket. It, it bothers her greatly, right? But I'll kick my shoes off too, and it bothers her when my shoes hit the floor and she can hear it. But, but I, I'm always cold in those theaters, and so I've got a blanket, on, and you can punch a button, and somebody will bring you food while you're watching a movie. It's amazing. What they haven't figured out is how to bring you good food. It's like they went to the concession stand at the football game to bring you the food, right? It's terrible food. Make good food. I don't want Denny's while I'm watching a movie. But, but when we sit there and we're watching this $300 million movie with explosions and, and fight scenes and, and all of this action, right? And, and we love that. But back then, they had a guy in the middle of the stage. And he's not just playing one part. He, he's playing multiple parts. In fact, it was boring compared to today's standards. But he would stand there, and, and he would play one or two or even three parts in, in, a, in a theater, which made it really incredible hard to follow, right? And so I asked our guys to give me some masks that, to show you what, what I'm talking about. But they, they would take a mask, right? And, and they would put it on. They tricked me in the first service. This is what they gave me. But, but, but they would put the mask on, and they would play a part, right? And, and so this person would play this part and would say these things or whatever. And, and then the same guy would put on another mask, and, and he would say these things right, right back to the other actor. And then he would turn, and he would do this, and then he would do this, and he's playing multiple parts. And that's where the word hypocrite comes from. Speaking of mask for a second, have y'all seen Kenny Rogers lately? The gambler I'm talking about. Man, I love that guy. Well, I, but I saw him the other day, and I was scared. <laughs> in the first service, I started off on this little diatribe, and Meredith was sitting on the front row going, no. You know, and in her mind, she's thinking, man, he may hear this sermon, and he'll cry. And I'm thinking, not with all that Botox. He's not going to cry. <laughs> There's no tear ducts left in there. You know what I'm talking about? Now, he's clearly had some work done, and he should not have paid for it. It's not good work. Those jowls are back tight. <laughs> tight, like a freaky tight. I got a message for Kenny. You got to know when to hold him. <laughs> Let me hide behind the mask because I crack myself up sometimes. Right? <laughs> and, and, and so that's what Paul is saying we shouldn't do. We should not put on a mask. Don't put the mask on. A sincere faith is when you take the mask off. A sincere faith is when you stop trying to be someone else. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying take the mask and put it down and stop pretending. Stop pretending to be righteous when you hold grudges and animosity. Stop pretending to be holy when there's creeping sin in your closet. Stop pretending to be Christ-like when your heart is actually filled with racism or, or, or hatred. When we pretend, what we do is we put masks on. And our faith is fraudulent. It's fraudulent. Because when we pretend, God can't get to our heart to change us. When we pretend, God can't get to our heart to do the work his love wants to do in us. 
And when we pretend and we pretend and we wear masks and we put on a good show for the world, but inside we're nothing but a whitewashed tomb, right? And, and God says, if you really want change, drop the mask. I just ask you today, is a fraudulent faith really worth fighting for? In fact, I'll ask you a better question. Is that what you're fighting for? And if you're spending your time and you're spending your energy trying to convince other people that you've got it all together and that your life is perfect, then you are fighting the wrong fight. Because that type of attitude that can never admit a crack in the armor is the type that leads to the wrong uh, attitude and the wrong motive and you will end up in a chair where you're looking at somebody else telling them that you're more righteous than them and you're more holy than them and you're more spiritual than them which looks nothing like Jesus right and it's not worth it to wear the mask all the time because when you do you got to be on all the time right and, and you, you you're always acting it out over and over and over again and you're living a lie but you're trying to convince others and here's the kicker you're not just trying to convince others you're trying to convince yourself but when you drop the mask, something amazing can happen in your life. Something transformational can happen in your life. When you tell yourself and you tell others, hey, I don't actually have it all together. It allows the Holy Spirit to come take over. And he says, now I can do a work inside of you. Which, by the way, I've seen a motive or an mo in some church circles recently where they have bought into vulnerability and they have bought into sincerity but it has only gone the highway of exhibitionism in other words they're always telling each other how, how sinful they are and how bad they are and all the bad things that they've done and all the thoughts that they've had but but they're never willing to let god work on it listen to me that's not of any use whatsoever right vulnerability is to say hey i need to take this mask off i've got an issue and then i let the holy spirit of god come in and change me in other words it is okay to not be okay it's just not okay to stay there and a sincere faith leads right into a spiritual fire. And God, according to Paul, put in you, through his Holy Spirit, certain spiritual gifts. And we all have them. And we all have different ones, right, according to the teaching of Paul. And Paul says, Timothy, those spiritual gifts you have, don't let those things stay dormant. Don't let those things take a nap. Use them. And fan them into flame. And get the flame going in your life. And this spiritual fire in your life. Get it going. And we've had this debate among my children for a few years, actually. Of what are the three ingredients required for fire? And we agree on the first two. The last one is kind of, you know, where we disagree. But we all know you need oxygen, right, to have a fire. you got to have air. You have to have fuel. Something's going to burn, and this is where we disagree, because my, my boys will say, you need heat. And I'll argue with them and say, no, it's not heat that you need. Heat is a byproduct of the fire. It doesn't help start the fire. And they're like, no, 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 you need heat. My science teacher said, you need heat. I said, let me call your science teacher. But because I call it spark, right? And so whatever it is, you, you need oxygen, you need fuel, and you need heat or spark, depending on what generation you are from, right? But you can't just hit the spark and, and call that fire. It's not fire. Because for it to be a real fire, you need oxygen and you need fuel to go along with it. Now, oxygen, what's that? Okay, in this illustration I'm making up for you, what's the oxygen in your walk with Christ? It's the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the oxygen in your life. He, he is the one that blows the wind in your life. In fact, the Hebrew word and the Greek word for spirit are the same Hebrew and Greek words for wind. And so the native readers read the scriptures. They understood it. They got it. We don't get it because it's not the same word in English. But, but in those languages, it's the same word. The Holy Spirit is the wind that blows into your life. He is the oxygen in the fire that, that you are to fan into flames. He is the wind on a hot day that blows the breeze and refreshes you. He is the oxygen to your life. And he has to always be present and always be in charge. Listen, he's not present when he's not in charge. That's how he plays. And so you want to quench the Holy Spirit, then, then you just take over boss. And you just become in charge, right? The same thing's true with a fire. When you smother a fire or you choke out a fire, what are you doing? You're choking out the oxygen, right? That's what you're doing. And that's what happens with the Holy Spirit in our lives. I, I, have any of you ever used one of these? How many of you have used one of these? I'm not saying seen, but have used. Golly, a lot of you at 11. There were like four of us in, at nine that, that have used one of these. It's called a bellows. I've seen them. I thought it was some antique thing. I thought there was no value to it whatsoever. But this summer, I was making a campfire, and, and there was one present. And so I used it on the fire. I thought, holy cow, this is awesome. These are awesome, actually, when you're trying to get a fire going because it just puts oxygen right in there. I had one guy come up afterwards and said, with my green egg, I use my leaf blower on low, and I put it in that vent and just turn it on. I'm like, can't do that with the food in there, right? And he said, no, 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 you got to do it before the food. But, but what you're doing is you're just blowing air. And the same experience I had this summer when I took one of these and got that fire going out of nowhere, that fire came on because the oxygen was blown directly into the fire. I thought, that's awesome. In the same way that I experienced that, and even bigger, when you let the Holy Spirit into your life and blow into your life and take over your life, you will turn back and look and go, that was awesome. I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know I was capable of that. I didn't know that that, that, that fruit was even present in my life. And, it, and the Holy Spirit's going, I take credit. I, I did that in your life. You need oxygen, but you also need fuel. And the fuel, write this down, is the established faith that only comes from the Word of God. L listen, to, to build a fire, we have fires at my house all the time because I have a lot of trees. And when you got a lot of trees, for all my life I thought I want to live on land with a lot of trees. And I don't know, about seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, we moved into a house that has a lot of trees. And here's what I've learned about trees. They're worse than children. They're expensive. You got to take care of them. You, you got to prune them. They're going to fall in the storm. I found myself in storms praying that I don't lose any trees. Praying for trees. Something's wrong with this scenario, right? But, but, but in the journey, when we have a storm and trees fall and branches fall, we're, me and the boys are out there with chainsaws and we're cutting them and the girls are dragging it. It's a whole family affair at my house, right? When I'm working, everybody's working. In fact, a few years ago, I got them all a chainsaw for Christmas. And next year, I'm going to get them all a weed eater, right? <laughs> we do things together in my house. And, and so we're cutting these branches, and so we'll build these fires, and we just burn them because I don't want to bundle it all up for the trash man. That is crazy what we have to do. 
right? That you got to bundle it all up in six-foot bundles and tie it. I'm just burning it. I'm tired of the bundles, right? And, and, and so I get the note from the garbage man all the time on the trash can that says, not taking it, right? And so I'm like, okay, fine, I'm burning it. And so we burn it. And I don't get a permit because I don't know how to get a permit. But we're burning all this, <laughs> th this brush fires all the time. And for this summer, the very first time, I let my boys attend to the fire and get the fire started all by themselves because we had a college boy living at our house. And I thought he's going to supervise and he has common sense. Come to find out he doesn't. <laughs> and, and, and so I have about 15 gallons of diesel that I'll fill up about every three years. And, and, and I'll use it uh, you know, on the fire to get the fire started. We've got these little petroleum things that you can get it started with. You pour a little diesel on it and you get the fire going. And then you tend it, you blow air in, and, and you, you get the fire and you lay stuff on top as, you, as it goes. And the boys come knocking on the door about two hours after they're supposed to get the fire started. And they said, hey, we're going to get more diesel. I said, get more? This usually lasts like three years of fires. And they said, yeah, we're out. And I thought, uh-oh, this is a problem. Which, by the way, just consumer alert, if you do fires, you only use diesel, okay? You never, ever, ever use gasoline because you will get hurt and it will be life-threatening. But you use diesel because it's not combustible. And so I come outside to see what's going on with this fire and think, well, how did they use 15 gallons of diesel on one brush fire? And, and I'm looking at it, and I'm smart enough to know, because I've been around teenagers, and I said, let me see your phone. And they said, what do you mean? I said, let me see it now. You know why? Because I know there's a video. <laughs> and I watched the video, and what I saw on the video appalled me, because it was extremely dangerous. What they did not know is now they were sitting down for a long, long lecture. And we covered safety and we covered this. You don't run with a diesel cam from a flame, right? And, and, and that's a bad, bad, bad idea. And, and they, they were trying to get it started. But here's the mistake my boys made. They believed that the diesel was the fuel. And it's not the fuel. It's only the accelerant. And before you get real hard on my boys, let me just say this to some of you. Some of you think that you can pop in here on Sunday even once or twice a month, hear a sermon, get into worship, and you feel great, and you leave here, and you never crack your Bible again. And you think this is the fuel to your spiritual life, and it's not. It is only the accelerant. And if I, you show up one Sunday and I'm off my A game, then all of a sudden you're in the toilet spiritually, right? And, and you didn't get the fire going or, or you, you don't feel it, right? And, and you're trying to burn your fire on diesel rather than real fuel. And you come here and you get the accelerant, which is great. I'm all for it, right? But, but you don't have the fuel to keep it going in your life. And no wonder you feel miserable by Wednesday. Because you're trying to live off of fuel, uh, a fire that has no fuel, right? And the fuel in your life comes from an established faith. What, what, what by the way, when you're burning and you want to burn something, and, and the goal is to have a fire, not just to get rid of brush, what's the best kind of wood? Is it the fresh cut, brand new wood? No, absolutely not, right? You want to cut it a long time ago. 
for, for a good fire. It's called seasoned firewood. To make the best fire, you, you want it to be seasoned. And that works perfectly for my illustration today because what Paul is saying is, hey, Timothy, your faith has got to be established. And it is. And it goes way, 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 way back to your mama. And even beyond that, it goes to your grandmother. The faith in their lives was established only by the Word of God. And, and you need oxygen. That's the Holy Spirit to have a spiritual fire. But you also need fuel, which is the Word of God in your life. Now, what's the spark or what's the heat, if, according to my boys? It, it's passion. You've you got passion inside of you that God puts within you, and He puts it inside of you. By the way, your passion is always informed by your spiritual gifts. God wires you together with certain spiritual gifts, and He decides what you're passionate about and what you like. And we're walking through this whole journey right now because one of ours is a senior in high school. Got student of the month at Union High School this month. Which I'm not bragging, but I gave her the genes and the DNA. But, but, but we're having these conversations. And we're saying, where do you want to go to college? Well, I don't know. Well, what do you want to do with your life? I don't know. She gets frustrated with this conversation. I'm like, okay, well, let's simplify it. What, what, what do you like to do? She gave me about 20 things that she doesn't want to do. And I said, honey, that's good progress. Let's write them down. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be involved with that. I don't want to, you know, and, and so a few things over here she does want to do. So now we're having this conversation. But at the end of the conversation, through a little bit of frustration, I told her, listen, we're going to have these conversations. We can't ignore it. And what daddy's doing right now is kicking this door in that this is an uncomfortable conversation. It's not uncomfortable. And really, at the end of the day, here's all we do is we just steward what God puts in our life. And God has put gifts in and on you, and we just have to steward it. And so all we've got to pray about right now is the next decision. Where am I going to go to school? Okay, so let's pray about that. And let's let God give you peace about it. And let's let God, and we got to go visit a few places, but let's journal. I hate journaling, Daddy. Okay, but journaling is valuable because you can go back and look over what, what God was saying to you and the peace that you have in your life. And at the end of the day, we're just going to pray. We're just going to say, God, would you just give me peace about this one decision? I don't, I'm not going to panic about a month from now. I, I, I want to know right now, today, and by the way, that passion you have in you, that's your connection to the Holy Spirit. That's the place that the water flows with the least resistance into your life. And when you are living your life in the will of God, what happens is you get marching orders from God through the Holy Spirit. He does that on a regular basis. When you're walking in the will of God, hear me, He speaks on a regular basis, and he will say, hey, go over there and talk to that person. Hey, give her a 100% tip. Hey, would you take care of this? Hey, don't go there. I don't want, I don't want you there. Hey, slow down. I, I need to talk to you. Hey, give that. Pay for that. Pray about this. That's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. And by the way, when you begin to hear that and obey it, it is like cocaine. It is incredibly addictive to your life. And by the way, that passion and fire does not come from hearing the orders of the Holy Spirit. It comes from acting on the orders of the Holy Spirit. Listen, when he speaks, there is a thing you got to do, and it's immediate. It's called instant obedience, instant obedience, that we walk with the Holy Spirit of God with this attitude, because you said so. 
And that's not good parenting always, but sometimes it's true. But let me just tell you something. When it comes to the Holy Spirit of God, that is my posture and that is my attitude, right? I'm going to be like Luke who said, you know what? I fished all night, but because you said so, I will put this out here on the other side. Because you said so, I will drop the nets. It doesn't make any sense to me, but because you said so. Let me just tell you something. You walk with the Holy Spirit like that, and he will fill your life with a fire that is unbelievable. And when you obey God's word, when it comes to you, you are fanning the flame. That bellow is huge and it's big and it will get higher and higher and hotter and hotter. But when you go through a season where you shut down the spark and you do that by not listening and obeying, maybe you've noticed it, maybe you haven't. The voice gets quieter and quieter. And pretty soon what is required in your spiritual life is something hooked up to propane to, to, to bring the fire back into your life because you let it go out. Listen, instant obedience is how you keep the fan flamed in your walk with Christ. It's just about trust and obey. It's just about I will trust you today. What is the Lord asking you to do today? Just do it. Don't get in a hurry about a week from now. Don't get all panicked about a year from now. What is he telling you to do today? Think about those things, right? You can't ignore the future. Think about them, but don't panic about them. Lord, what are you telling me to do today? And my plan on a regular basis, uh, we're going to go there for a campus. We're going to do this for a campus. Are we going to borrow that money? Are we going to use the line of credit? Are we going to do this? Are we going to hire them? Are we gonna go? When I don't know what to do, I sit down at my desk in my office, and I've got a little piece of paper behind my monitor that says, love God, love people. And when I don't know what to do, I always go back to that. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love people. And you know what? If I'm loving God and loving people today, he's not going to let me make a misstep. And on a regular basis, you just ask the Lord, what do you want me to do today? And then follow it. Now, listen, I don't have time. I can't finish the whole chapter today. Okay? I said we were going to do it, but I'm going on to chapter 2 next week. I'll make a video on Facebook Live one morning, tomorrow or the next day, and I'll finish it. Okay? You just watch it. If you missed the video, just read it yourself. And ask the Holy Spirit to teach you and let it be fuel to the fire in your life this week. And, and I'll just say to you, you know, I've, I've done a lot of funerals recently. And some for older people. And some for babies. And everywhere in between, let me just tell you what I know. Life is a vapor. It's a vapor. Whether you're 90 or 3, Life is a vapor. Psalm 39, 4. Teach me to number my days. And when you get to the end of that little vapor, you want to win. You want to win. And the way to win is to fight the good fight. Listen, it's not to fight good the wrong fight. It's to fight good the good fight, the right fight, the proper fight. Few weeks ago speaking of fight we watched conor mcgregor right and, and he lost we all knew he was going to lose right the whole world knew he was going to lose but but he was an mma guy who was having to learn how to box to fight this fight and he trained and he tried and he lost but it was all stacked against him right it was all stacked against him but for well over a year from the point that he signed that contract he knew who his opponent was going to be 
He could study them. He, he could understand them. He knew who the opponent was. Listen, in the battles of our lives, we don't always know when we get up who the opponent is going to be that day. It, it may be cancer. It may be the death of a child. It may be a divorce. It may be financial ruin. It may be the loss of a job. We don't know who the opponent is going to be from day to day. But hear me, church, the worst thing that could happen would be for you to get to the end of your life and the referee to raise your hand declaring that you won only to discover you won the wrong fight. And all of the energy and all of the effort and all of the sweat and all of the blood and all of the tears, the wrong battle. And in order to make sure that you fight the right fight, you got to have a faith and you got to have a fire. A faith and a fire. A, a, a sincere faith and a spiritual fire. And let me just remind you the ingredients for that spiritual fire. Oxygen, the Holy Spirit. The fuel is the Word of God. And the spark is the passion put in you by your spiritual gifting. But there is one ingredient that I talked about that if you don't write this one down and live with it and understand it, then, then you'll miss the whole point. And it's called instant obedience. Instant obedience to the Spirit of God. At the end of the day, it won't matter which opponent gets in the ring with you during your week because if you have a sincere faith and a spiritual fire and you are instantly obeying, you can whip whatever opponent gets in that ring with you on any given day. And here's the question. What has God told you to do? And have you done it? Let's just bow our heads all across all of our campuses this morning. Heads bowed, eyes closed, hearts open. And if you're here today on one of our campuses, I'm going to ask the campus pastors to come at every campus. If you're here today and you say, hey, pastor, if you're going to pray, I, I, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me that I could know what my next step is. That he would just show me, that he would speak to me. I, I, I just want you to agree with me that the Holy Spirit would communicate to me what my next step is. Every campus, if that's you, just raise your hand. Say, Pastor, I, I need to know. I don't really know what it is. I don't know what's next. I'm praying about it. I'm searching. I'm looking. I'm, I, I, I'm reading. I'm praying. I don't know what it is. Just lift your hand up. Hold it up while I pray. Every campus, Midtown, Downtown, South Tulsa, Owasso, Chicago, the Middle East. Father, I pray for every hand that's lifted in our congregation today across all of our campuses that you would meet them right where they are. Holy Spirit, that you would speak to them. I thank you that you want to answer that question more than we want to know the answer. I thank you that you haven't left us, you haven't forsaken us, never for a day have we walked alone, that you want to speak to your kids. And I pray today that you would give them a rhema, you would give them a specific word. Not just a logos, but a rhema for their lives that they would know what it is you're speaking over them. They would hear it. They would understand it. And Father, more than anything, you give them courage that they would obey it and they would walk in it and they would do what it is that you're asking them to do. I pray for favor and blessing. I pray, Father, for protection. I pray you would go before them, behind them, all around them, in them and through them, that you would, Father, as they hear it and obey it, that you would begin to speak clearly in their lives. And you can put your hands down and whether you just raised your hand or not, if you know what your next step is, I just want you to stand to your feet. You say, I know what it is. 
He either just spoke it to me just now in this service or he spoke it to me yesterday or he spoke it to me 38 years ago. I know what my next step is. It's clear in my heart. It's clear in my mind at every campus. Just stand up. It's to write that book. It's to take that job. It's to pursue this thing. It's to pay for somebody something. It's to take care of this. I know what my next step is. God's made it really, really, really clear. He wants me to sell this business. He wants me to start that business. He wants me to uh, pursue this journey. He wants me to invest in these people. He's made it clear. What is it? You know what it is at every campus. Just stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. You've juggled it around. You, you, you've, you, you've asked for fleeces. You, you, you've prayed all kinds of prayers. You, you're playing games with God about it, but you know what it is. You know what it is in your heart of hearts. You know what it is. Let me just tell you, those moments in my life where I turn and go the other way, when I know what God is saying to me, it's never a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It is always a train wreck. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Now, if you're still seated at one of our campuses, I want you to pray with me for all those that are standing. Across thousands and thousands and thousands of people this morning, we are praying together for our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, would you give them courage? Would you put courage in these men and in these women and in these boys and in these girls? Would you put your holy fire courageousness in them that they would go and do what it is you've asked them to do? Father, in many cases, you don't promise success. You don't tell us what step two is. You just want us to obey. And sometimes it's something you're doing in us and sometimes it's something you're going to do in the whole world. And we don't know. But we want to obey. We want to trust and we want to obey. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ today that you would bless them greatly. Father, may they feel the love of their brothers and sisters. May they feel the love of their faith family. May they feel the love of this congregation. May they feel the love of the Holy Spirit of God on them and in them. Now, I want everybody just to stand with these that are standing across all our campuses. Would you just stand to your feet? And today, as you stand to your feet, your heads are still bowed, your eyes are still closed, your heart is still open. If you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, I don't know for sure that I have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know for sure that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and my forgiver, but I want to know, would you pray for me? I'm not going to embarrass you, and I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to call you forward today. I just want to pray for you. You say, Pastor, that's me. Pray for me at every campus. Would you just slip your hand up and say, that's me? I don't know if Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, okay? Anybody else? At every campus, just slip it up so that your campus pastor can find you. Anybody else? Slip it up high, okay? Anybody else? Anybody else? I pray right now for those who just lifted their hands across all of our campuses that today could be the day of salvation for them. And right where you're standing, I want to lead you in a prayer. You're going to hear men and women praying it all around you. But I want you to voice this and confess with your mouth, and the Bible teaches Jesus will step into your life. So right where you're standing, it doesn't matter which campus you're at or where you're watching in the world online, you want to trust Christ, would you just say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, and my forgiver. In the best way that I know how, I trust you alone to save me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name we pray. And together we all say, 
Amen and amen. Would you give the Lord a clap offering today?